Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 through 19 and 24 to 30. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring to your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, brother, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his father's house, in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Ju Judah was comforted, he went up to Tinmah, to sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Dolomite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tinmah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. She turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I, I will send you a goat from the flock. And she said, I will give you, I will give me a pledge. If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garment, on the garments of her widowhood. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors at the church. Uh, welcome to Advent 1 and Sunday service here at Exilic. Uh, that's right. We are kicking off Advent's, uh, Advent season today with four Sundays prior to Christmas to prepare for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's nice that this tradition comes at the end of the year because it gives us an opportunity to do two things. One is to look back at the first advent and to look forward uh, to the advent to come, uh, which will mark the coming back of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can say that we're people who live in between 
to Advent, and that's really special because we are headed towards somewhere. There's a destination in sight, and we're going together as our shepherd, our great Lord Jesus Christ, leads us. Well, today, as was mentioned today, we kick off a new sermon series called Mothers of Jesus. And just right out of the gate, it's best to introduce the series uh, by referring you to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 at the start of the New Testament. And uh, what you'll notice in that genealogy, as mentioned before, um, is that there are actually five women included in the family tree of Jesus, four of whom we'll study during the Advent this season. But there is this strange common thread that connects all five of these women, and it's this. That these women were women of disrepute. Uh, Their reputations involved scandal. Uh, These were women you didn't want to include in your family tree, let alone call your mothers. And yet, Jesus was not shy or embarrassed about doing so. And in fact, he elevates them to the status of honor and value and dignity and worth. How does he do that? Why does he do that? And what does it say about our Lord Jesus? What we'll discover in this series and hopefully this season is that God is near to those who are downtrodden and disenfranchised. And he's unafraid to get down into the muck of their disgrace and our disgrace. And what he loves to do is take disgraceful pasts and redeem them into lives full of grace and beauty. Uh, You know, when we think about the pasts that we have, uh, maybe there's disgrace there, maybe there's dirt there, and uh, the world would say that you should wish upon shooting stars, right? Uh, But the truth is there's nothing really compared to the dawn, because with the dawn, there's a rising of the sun. And uh, Charles Spurgeon kind of said that Um, in spiritual terms when he said, the stars in his right hand may fail to penetrate the darkness, but the rising of the sun of righteousness effectively scatters the gloom. And that's the word of hope we need today and in this season. And so uh, we start by looking at the first woman mentioned in that genealogy, Tamar. And we'll talk about Tamar's story In the following three points, we'll talk about her disgrace, we'll talk about her vindication, and we'll talk about her honor. Disgrace, vindication, and honor. First, Tamar's disgrace. Read with me Genesis 38, 6 and following. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. What the heck? you know, is going on here, right? Why is this in the Bible? Um, Just to give you guys a little bit of context, Judah is the great-great-grandson of Abraham. So you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons is Judah, okay? Now, Judah 
leaves his family, marries a foreigner. The story's off to a great start already, right? Marries a foreigner and fathers three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Now we're told that Er, uh, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is the wife of the firstborn son of Judah. But Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so for, for, for sins or evils that are unmentioned, the Lord puts him to death. Now at this point, Tamar's disgrace starts, because at this point, she is widowed, which in that day and age would have put a woman proverbially up the creek without a paddle in terms of livelihood and family heritage. And that's why verse 8, look with me. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. You know, there was a law back then called the Levirate Law, and it said that uh, the closest known relative, and in this case it's Onan, heir's younger brother, uh, would have to perform the duty of marrying his brother's childless widow to produce legitimate offspring on his behalf. Because in a society where family wealth and inheritance was basically landed, it was a way to prevent loss of family property, wealth and lineage to those outside the clan. And so the child born to the new Levirate union would then continue the line of his deceased father and be conferred the family name and rights, including the rights to the family inheritance. But it also served this really important purpose of offering protection for widows because it ensured them coverage of livelihood and family lineage. But, verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. This is the Levirate law gone wrong because what we see in this passage is that Tamar is sexually used and abused by Onan. And the reason is because Onan, he didn't want to produce offspring for his brother, probably thinking about the larger share of the inheritance he would get from his father without his brother and his family in the picture. And he probably figured he's getting some free sexual gratuity while he's at it. And so in his mind, he's thinking that he's going to get a bigger piece of the pie and a piece on the side as well. Tamar is sexually used and abused. And at this, the Lord sees his wickedness and puts Onan to death as well, just like Er. Um, but Tamar's poor situation gets worse, doesn't it? Because she's not only widowed once. But now she's widowed twice, and things are actually about to get even worse. Look with me, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shalem, my son, grows up. For he, Judah, feared that he, Shalem, would die like his brothers, Aaron Onan. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is so, so wrong because Tamar is dismissed to her father's house until Shayla 
grows up, but this is what's going on here. Uh, Tamar is forced to submit to a form of social disgrace and having to return to her father's house after having been married twice, right? And that would have been uh, so stigmatizing uh, back then, uh, but more so uh, now, but back then it would have been really horrible. Um, but also, if you look at the text, it says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Judah somehow thinks that the death of his sons have something to do with Tamar, like she's the social pariah that caused it. He scapegoats her. He blames her. Tamar is clearly the victim here. And just to recap, she was widowed once, sexually used and abused, widowed twice, dismissed, scapegoated, socially disgraced. Can you imagine the, the disappointment, the hurt, the wounds, the trauma? And I have two daughters, and I can't imagine the heartache for any woman of any era to endure such things. Diane Langberg, in her most recent book, Suffering in the Heart of God, says this about trauma. Trauma means living with the recurrent, tormenting memories of atrocities witnessed or born. Memories that infect victims' sleep with horrific nightmares, destroy their relationships with their capacity to work or study, torment their emotions, shatter their faith, and mutilate hope. Trauma is extraordinary, you see, not because it rarely happens, but because it swallows up and destroys normal human ways of living. The dungeons of this world are filled with traumatized people. Now, at this point, some of us might be thinking, well, you know, this is exactly why Christianity is not for me, right? Look at the horrific miscarriage of justice perpetuated by those who are heralded as the patriarchs of the faith. But just a few things to say to you if you feel that. The first is, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that God condones it. Um, Number two, Judah, the perpetrator in this story, is never cast in the story as a hero to be venerated, uh, worthy of praise. Nor is he in any of the stories about his life anywhere else. And three, God will deliver justice, but in his perfect timing, in his appointed hour. As someone once said, strange isn't it? We who wear watches seek to counsel him who oversees cosmic clocks and calendars. Uh, Because what we'll see is that God will intervene and he will adjudicate right from wrong um, and do a whole lot more for Tamar than we could have ever imagined. Uh, That's what we'll turn to next. Tamar's disgrace is just horrible, horrible. But how will we see this story turn around for her? And initially what we see is that Tamar comes up with a solution and she's going to go after justice. She's going to go after justice herself, but her approach is unconventional in the least. In short, what she does is she disguises herself as a roadside prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. And uh, she's determined um, in honor of her deceased husband to produce offspring in his line Um, and it doesn't take much because Judah takes the bait real easy Judah says let me come into you I mean just plain and simple very direct and she says what will you pay me right this is a transaction for sex 
And he says, well, I'll send you a goat. And she says, well, you don't have the goat, so what will you pledge for me until you send it? And, uh, he, and he says, well, what would you like as a pledge? And Tamar says, I want your signet, your cord, um, and your staff, uh, which would have been hit, this small cylinder seal attached to a cord that would have been worn around his neck, and it was rolled over documents as a means of kind of affixing a self-notarized signature. Basically, these were the instruments of Judah's legal identity and social standing, which would have been the modern equivalent of a person's driver's license and uh, credit cards. And so the transaction's uh, kind of settled, it's done, and uh, they sleep together. Um, he sleeps with her unknowing uh, father-in-law. I will pick up in the text verses 24 to 26. Read with me. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. See what's happened here. Um, she took justice into her own hands. She's vindicated by her perpetrator's own words. She is more righteous than I. Right? Her actions for going after justice makes him come to terms with his own sexual hypocrisy and that he committed the greater crime, the greater sin of withholding his last son from Tamar. Her relatively greater righteousness, in other words, brings a man of pride, indecency, immorality to his knees. Uh, Tamar gets the vindication and justice she deserved. The end. The end? That'd be horrible if this was just the end, right? Uh, we, we see in the text that Tamar is legally vindicated, meaning that she, she won't burn, right? She won't be punished for her actions here. But this is messy. This is messy and it's not simple because only partly the moral of this story is do what you have to to go after justice, right? And we could spend a whole sermon series, and we did, right, on justice and what that looks like. There's so many places in the Bible that talk about going for justice where there isn't any. One such passage is Isaiah 117. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case, meaning really advocate for the fatherless, really advocate for the widow, the poor and the marginalized, who are often the oppressed in our society because God cares about them. Yes, true to all that, it's good biblical teaching. And Tamar was right to seek out justice for the injustice she suffered, but it really was under less than ideal circumstances, means, and even outcomes, right? Because Tamar, you see, still had to play a prostitute. Uh, she still technically committed adultery because she was betrothed to Shelah, 
And there was really no difference. If you slept with someone who was married versus someone who was betrothed in the Old Testament, the death sentence was the same for both scenarios. It, it, it didn't distinguish. There's incest here, right? Her father-in-law is father and grandfather to her kid. Uh, don't get me wrong, Judah definitely need to realize the need for a greater righteousness than his own. And the injustice and the liability of guilt really needed to be mitigated away from Tamar. But a greater righteousness, meaning moral relativism, didn't fully solve the problem. Because why? Think about the lasting effects of what happened here. There is social and communal stigma for both Judah and Tamar. This was a major social faux pas. The denigration to both their family names the awkward sexual tension and the relational strain between them both now. And especially for Tamar, she's, she's left in disrepute. She's scarred. She's psychologically wounded. She's traumatized, stripped of her dignity. She's disgraced and for the rest of her life. Things are better on paper. There's vindication, but it's still messy. And the stain of disgrace is still there. You know, that's the problem with moral relativism. Because living with greater righteousness is the way for the Christian. We're not, we're not saying that it isn't, right? And so qualitatively, our lives should be more upright, right, than as compared to the world. But the point is, you know that in a fallen world, it won't ever be enough, right? The payout for being upright is not ever as great as you thought it would be. It's why you can be ethical in business deals but still lose major dollars and still be fired. Right? It's, it's why you can, be graciously, you can graciously let a city dad with his stroller and his kid ahead of you in line at Trader Joe's but then have the five people standing behind you stare you down with loathing like you committed a crime. I kind of experienced that, like when I took my kid, you know, standing online, someone, someone let me ahead, but then the people in the back just stare at you like you committed a crime. Um, do you remember the days of whiteout? When we used to write papers or, or, or things on paper with this thing called pens, right? But you know, you know, the days of whiteout made it such that if you, you know, like made an error, you can use the whiteout and, and blot it out. But you know what would always happen to me? I don't know if you resonate with this, but once you use the whiteout, you would inevitably smudge it like with your hand. That would always happen. And then, you know, things got a little bit better when they came out with like the roller tape or whatever, right? But even so, you could still see where the error were, was. Like you, you couldn't hide the error. Error, and be, I'm thinking about whiteout, and I'm thinking that's what happened to Tamar, right? It was whited out, right? She was legally vindicated by her perpetrator, by his own words, but that smudge was so there. That disgrace, that stain, just didn't go away. Immoral relativism is. Never good enough. Because the real question that we have for Tamar, right? This is our true concern when we read Tamar's story is how will her honor and her dignity be restored? 
How will she go from this unimportant woman forgotten in the world's heap of disgraced casualties to a woman of honor, to a woman of dignity, to a woman of worth and unfading beauty? Because that's what we want for Tamar. Because what we see in Tamar is our own story of disgraced pasts. When you think about your stories, you think about all the sins that have happened onto you, but also the sins that we've committed to make those things even worse. That disgrace is still there. We can't shake our pasts. How can we, how can we be restored from all that? How can we be restored of honor and beauty and worth again? Because what we want for Tamar is Isaiah 61.3. For God to grant those who mourn to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What we want is for God to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. How will we, people of disgraced paths, be called oaks of righteousness? And so I think there is a more primary moral of the story. One of the morals definitely is go after social justice. But I think the more primary moral of the story is this, that what Tamar needs and what the world needs and what we need is not a greater righteousness, but a perfect one. Perfect righteousness. Because it just simply stands to reason that if greater righteousness could still have some positive outcomes. What do you think perfect righteousness could do? I'll change the course of all of history as we know it. And here's where we turn in the message to the part about Tamar getting that. Read with me Genesis 38, verse 27 and following. In the last point, Tamar's honor. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, and that's Tamar speaking, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was, and his name was called Zerah. Well, it's a time of Tamar's labor, and there were twins in her uh, womb. Two sons will be born. One of the sons, he looks like he'll, he'll come out first, but then he pulls back. Um, it's a little bit cinematic. And then just as he pulls in, his brother came out. He breaches. And Tamar said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And that's why his name was Perez, because his name Perez means breakthrough or breakout. Uh, now, it's hard to see. It's hard to see at first in the locality of this passage the significance of the son who broke through. But in the story of redemption, this was the breakthrough that Tamar needed. Because as the rest of the biblical story would tell us, this son, Perez, would father the promised line of kings. And from his own loins, one day would father another son who would break through but this time break through and break out into the darkness of Tamar in the world and redeem it once and for all. And this son was prophesied about all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. 
Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The light that would be coming into the darkness of Tamar, into the darkness of our disgraced past as well, was what? A philosophical enlightenment? A scientific discovery? A Nobel Peace Prize winning idea or concept? No. The light that would shine into the darkness would be a child. And this child would be born and this child would be given, meaning this child would be of natural human descent and he would be a gift to receive. And we're told that the son was sent to bind up the heart of the brokenhearted. The son of breakthrough would be no less the son of God, the light of God, the promised king and messiah. And though from exalted places like heaven, or the exalted place like heaven, he was born in a stable, and he was placed in a manger. His name was Jesus. And what we see later in life is that he would trade places with Tamar and us, taking on our disgrace for his beauty and honor. Uh, the way that he would break through for Tamar, in other words, was by coming to identify with her pain by assuming her pain, her disgrace, to take and wear the clothes of scandal and sin and become victim to hatred and injustice and evil and scream out in anguish and terror as his hands and feet were nailed to a cross of rugged wood. Father, Father, forgive them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a trading of places that happens on the cross for us. And Diane Langberg uh, writes this poem called The Victim. And you'll see that actually uh, victims and sinners alike uh, identify with the sufferings of Jesus on the cross because that's how salvation was accomplished. Look with me, the, the poem here. Abused, abandoned, battered, broken, Emotions ridiculed, body penetrated and invaded, stripped, taunted, cursed, beaten. The victim lay prostrate on a cross, robed in light years of grace and glory, love incarnate now exalted, blessed and lauded, praised and honored. The victor sits beside his father, cherished, chosen, redeemed, radiant, gowned in perfect bridal splendor, cleansed and glowing, guilt-free, blameless, the bride will stand beside her bridegroom. So now we come full circle now, right back to Matthew's genealogy. Tamar, this disgraced widow and sexual abuse victim, will be honored by being included in the genealogy of the one who was disgraced and victimized on the cross for her. And because Jesus Christ became sin for her, he could bestow her the honor of being called the mother of the savior of the world. Do you see what's true for Tamar? It could be true for you. John Piper said this. Why did God choose to make these women of ill repute so prominent in redemptive history? In order to place the emphasis of history on redemption. 
All these women share this in common, a disgraceful past. They either committed or suffered disgrace, whether they deserved them or not, they each had a tainted reputation. They endured the contempt of others and felt the pain of very real shame. At least four of the six would have carried extremely painful, sordid memories, but God no longer sees them as disgraceful, but graceful. God changed their identities. Instead of women of ill repute, he made them ancestors or disciples of the Messiah. They're archetypes, in other words, of what he does for all of his children. God is saying loudly through each woman, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Church, brothers and sisters and friends, you are a new creation in Christ. Your past no longer defines you. It's Christ who defines you and gives you a new identity and changes your disgraced past and gives you honor and an unfading beauty and a belonging to the family of God. Just a couple of applications to close. All you need then, all you need is need as you come to God. Uh, Martin Luther, in his commentary on the seven penitential psalms, which he wrote in 1517, said this, God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace, meaning You need to know that you are sick to be healed. You need to know that you are forsaken and lonely for God to comfort you. You need to know that you're blind so that you can get help and get sight. And so that's the attitude that we come um, at the, the beginning of Advent here, to know that we need a Savior who was born to us and who was given to us who would take our shameful pasts and our disgraced pasts, take it upon themselves on the cross and give us a new name and a new belonging. And so the call is this, if you're someone who's returning to church uh, for this holiday season and you've been away for a while, the simple message is this, come home. You're missed and know that however you've lived your life up to this point, God does not count it against you in the work accomplished by his son. And so come home because you are most welcome here. And finally, Psalm 64, five says this, sing to God, sing in praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him, His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. The final thing is this, it's fitting that today is Hope for New York Sunday and that we've been participating in the holiday um, CG service projects because what is more Christmas than to be living expressions of God's love that demonstrates to the world that no matter their pasts or their present, that they have honor value and dignity in Jesus the Savior.
the hope of Advent until Christmas Day are the words of the Son of God, the Son of Breakthrough, who read these enduring words, and this is how we'll end. Hear now God's word. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who took on the rags of our scandal and sin and hurt and shame and that you've healed us by the power of your love because you were nailed to that cross in our stead. And that's why you came, to be the savior of the world, to be the light into our darkness. And so we pray um, that you fill our hearts and that you unite our exilic community to know that truth more deeply than ever before this season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.